0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. We've had numerous guests on the pod focused on legal tech, for those of you that listen regularly know. We've not, however, had a conversation on practical governance strategies for AI and other frontier technologies. That omission is fixed by today's conversation with Karen Silverman, the CEO and founder of the Cantalus Group. Karen advises Fortune 50 companies, startups, consortia, and governments on how to govern cutting-edge technologies in a rapidly changing policy environment. Her expertise is informed by more than 20 years of practice and management leadership at Latham & Watkins, where she advised global businesses in complex antitrust matters, M&A, governance, ESG, and crisis management. She's a leading voice in the governance of AI and other frontier technologies. And that means she's a regular speaker at conferences, forums, and her thoughts on the governance oversight and real-world applications of AR, AI, VR, and other nascent technologies have been featured in numerous journals and publications. Most recently, Karen launched a series Illuminate Plus, a streaming platform for cutting-edge legal content, featuring the most respected thought leaders of the profession. Karen's series called Where Lawyers Meet Tech and Tech Meets the Law is about how new technologies impact the substance and practice of law and what all lawyers need to know in order to be effective counselors. We talked about her role in Luminate Plus, but more importantly, we talked about how Karen developed this level of expertise in business and legal issues around frontier technologies. As you might expect, we also talked about what Cantalus Group does and the type of companies they work with, together with her views on the knock-on effects of machine learning on the culture of the practice. And of course, we talked about the changes necessary in the regulatory framework to keep up with the speed of change in technology. It was a wide-ranging and fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm speaking today with Karen Silverman, who is the CEO of Cantalus Group. Karen, thank you so much for making time to chat with us today. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. You do so many interesting things and stuff that is incredibly important to where the practice is going and the profession is going. So I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: Well, likewise, and thanks for surfacing these issues.
0: So let's talk a little bit. Let's start with talking a little bit about where Cantalus' sweet spot is, and then we can talk a little bit about your journey that got you there before getting into substance Tell us about Cantalus, what it does and what its expertise is.
1: Sure. So it's in our name a little bit. We can back up to talk about that if you'd like. But we are a small boutique advisory group, largely on the business side, but we also have the capability and do a little bit of a legal practice in support of the business work, really focused on technology governance and helping clients of all shapes and sizes figure out not just what they think about how to govern these technologies and their opportunities and their risks, but what to do about it, right? And how to really start to implement these processes and practices to turn out better outcomes, frankly, right? And to get the most out of their technology on the one hand, and to to minimize some of the risks that we either know or are starting to understand come with these technologies. So we're on the ground in our clients, you know, helping them prioritize, helping them design, helping them articulate and train on what technology governance, particularly right now, a lot around artificial intelligence is going to mean for them. And it ends up being a very contextual analysis. So super interesting and very, very much specific to each of our clients and their use cases,
0: which I love. Let's get a definition off the bat. You talked about artificial intelligence. What type of technology are you talking about when you use the term artificial intelligence? Because many of our, our listeners it means different things to different people.
1: And there is absolutely a sense in which artificial intelligence is in the eye of the beholder, right? I mean, there, there are some sort of minimum characteristics, but there is a very, a lot of loose definition that is, um, both intended and unintended. So to turn back for a minute, when, when, when I talk about the Cantelis group, we talk or, or Cantelis is fine. We're focused on what we call frontier technologies, and AI is one of them, and AI is one that is now powering other technologies like facial recognition and like sentiment analysis and and other things. But when you boil it right down, what AI is, it is the use of data, which are by definition historical information points, with a model to create a prediction about the future. And these become ever more sophisticated and capable prediction machines that are capable of making predictions that allow them to function in some sense autonomously, to learn from their environment and to make decisions and to support humans in making decisions in a much more what we would call intelligent way. They're not actually intelligent in a sentient sense, and they're not going to be, if ever, for a very long time. They are just extremely sophisticated mathematical models using large quantities of data to anticipate, react, suggest, sort, select any objective on which they are set. And the reason that's important is because how humans set the objectives for these models is sort of a critical piece of the equation that we often don't include in the definition of AI, but ought to be included in the definition of AI. So What objective is being set? What data is it using? What math is it using? There are various techniques. What predictions and outputs is it producing? And how are we using those outputs either by themselves or in combination with other human decision-making or other machine outputs, right? And so it's a whole ecosystem. And when we talk about AI, what we're really talking about is that ecosystem that includes these very sophisticated models.
0: Fair enough. And it sounds like you've got sort of, not to oversimplify it, but three areas where humans get involved, how they set the objectives, the humans that are creating the algorithms or defining the math or creating the program, and then the humans that are using the outcome, which may or may not be the same group as design the objectives, or may or may not usually are not the same group, I take it, that design the algorithms or... exactly.
1: And then the fourth group would be the people who are impacted by whatever that process produces, right? So you've got that
0: full loop. Fair enough. Fair enough. How did you come to this level of expertise? I I know you retired a couple of years ago from Latham-Watkins, which is a fabulous firm. You were in the Department of Justice at the beginning of your career. How does one develop an expertise in governance and business issues around frontier? I like the term frontier technologies. That's fabulous around frontier technologies in what appears from the outside to have been a at least the markings of a traditional law practice.
1: Yeah. And in, in many respects, it is, it is a classic law practice. I was very fortunate at Latham and at DOJ before that and, and a couple other places to help to build and develop a really contemporary merger control practice. And I think I can credit a lot of that work with getting me ready to do this in a couple of different ways. One, so many of the transactions, I, 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 given my vintage and my geographic location, many, many, many of the deals that I worked on involved what were at that point in time frontier technologies, whether they were communications technologies or enterprise software or clocking and timing devices or chipsets. The nature of my work and the nature of the clients that I had was in and around this technology space. And in order to do the merger control work well, you know, you have to get very deep inside these technologies and their strategic significance and importance relative to the target in a transaction or relative to concerns a government might have or relative to how is a board thinking about a strategic acquisition or divestiture in some cases. And so. And really is, it's an applied science merger control work, and it was deep in the weeds of the technologies themselves in that. And my practice was very government focused and facing so that it was also, it brought in this sort of regulatory piece. What I started to appreciate was that a lot of my clients were focused on aspects of the technology ecosystem. They were focused on the capabilities that they were developing or using or acquiring. They didn't necessarily have the bandwidth or capacity just from a time and resources perspective to understand the whole environment into which these technologies are getting introduced. And I had this interesting vantage because you know, antitrust is what somebody said. You have to have a very quick and shallow mind, I think, was the way it, <laughs> it was Judge Silverman who said that. I got a look at and I had to and was blessed with the opportunity to understand a lot of different technologies as they had to relate to one another over the course of a long career. And so it's really set me up to appreciate that these technologies were not existing in isolation to one another, but really in relation to one another. And that got me curious. And um, just by staying and, and deals were always... You know, you're very much focused on the next thing that's happening, right? It's a very future focused practice. And so I think that whole combination to make a long answer to a short question, you know, just sort of set me up to really start to dive in and focus on the set of issues that were emerging now that these technologies were so much more capable on the one hand and so much more opaque in some respects on the other. And the other thing I would say about artificial intelligence in particular, and a lot of these technologies on the frontier is that they can scale very quickly, right? So that whereas product development and impact used to be a fairly iterative process, and there was lots and lots of time to kind of evaluate productivity and performance and impact, we're moving into faster and faster cycles. And so it became more and more obvious to me and my colleagues in this space, we need to be doing some forethought around these issues, not just stay reactive, that we would inevitably be too slow. And that while like regulation is coming, we can talk about that. And there are plenty of governments and civil society organizations are working very hard on that and turning out some really great work. It was really going to be up to the businesses and governments who are using these technologies to discuss how they're going to use them, whether or not they're regulated, right? And, And how are they going to use them to competitively differentiate themselves, to support their core missions and values? And how are they going to use them to mitigate the risks that are known, but also are kind of imminent.
0: What led you to start your own business to do this? You were a partner at one of the best law firms in the world, and yet you make the leap to start your own business.
1: Yeah, and I, um, you know, my mother asked the same question. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you what it was: is that what I quickly realized is that one of the reasons this was so hard for people who had day jobs. You know, in this area, was that it actually takes expertise from a whole wide range of disciplines to understand and really move the ball forward in ways that are practical. I and mean, you can get your philosophical, you know, grad students to to think about what principles ought to be, but you really need people, who, you know, how operations run within a particular organization or a particular field to be able to translate that into something a business could use, for instance, right? It's it's moving from the theoretical to the implemented or practical really requires a whole range of disciplines that goes way beyond what lawyers can do, which is why we felt, I, I formed this group to be able to bring in ethicists and medical doctors and IP lawyers and process, you know, robotic process automation experts and financial risk management, you know, experts so that we can really integrate expertise in a new way to meet the moment. And the moment is, is sort of demanding. you'd mentioned that there are different people involved at different stages. And one of the big issues is that even if they ostensibly are on the same page, How different people in different disciplines understand very even basic terms like fairness or transparency or bias is very different. And you need you need a way to stop, explore how the where those differences are coming up and how those differences can be resolved and reconciled before, you know, in the design phase of a lot of this. And that required more than legal thinking and it required the ability to to really integrate in a new way across these disciplines. And so that's why Fundamentally, was that it was to build what I thought would be a, an apt solution set from a services perspective that I needed more agility and flexibility than I think I could do, you know, as a lawyer in a more traditional environment in that sense.
0: Oh, fair enough. What type of clients do you take on and what types of problems are you there to solve?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So, interestingly, our client base now is quite diverse, right? It's everything from Fortune 50 technology platform companies where we service more in the role of a capacity extender. You know, they've got quite evolved responsible AI practices. And so they're often so busy putting out fires and sort of the day to day that we end up doing, we help them with some of the thought leadership work that requires a little bit more distance and separation. We're working with financial institutions who are sort of making that shift from traditional, very manually driven risk management and compliance techniques to more automated and AI-driven ones. We're the subject matter experts for the Business Roundtable, which is a more theoretical project. We're sort of helping them and their membership advance their responsible AI initiative we're working with what I call more of, a, it's not really a startup, it's more of an adolescent company. We've got a couple of those and and they tend to be in the areas where they're dealing with sensitive or what I call sort of the intimate applications, right? It's it's your healthcare, financial world, your dating life. So we work with those kinds of companies to understand how the technologies that they're developing and what kind of governance around those technologies is going to speak to their customer base. Because if they lose the trust of their customer base, they lose their asset or their asset erodes. We're also working with two venture firms on some diligence, deal diligence, you know, around these issues. And we're working with some sort of legacy, not legacy, sort of traditional consumer products companies who are using these technologies in the operational part of their business. You know, who are who are working, who are trying to figure out what procurement looks like for them, what process automation looks like them, and then very significantly what marketing looks like for them, because the ability to influence populations is changing and there's a lot of hype out there and there are a lot of capabilities that sound desirable at sort of a surface level, but really need to be unpacked to understand how they're going to fit into a whole business plan and culture. So we do a lot of culture change.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine the people side must be an interesting dynamic that culture change, change management must be an interesting part of your your remit.
1: Love it. And one of the reasons... To answer this gets also back to your question about why, why you start something new to do this? We actually sort of bring the communications piece in from the very beginning, because I think culture change is such an important part of it. And whether you're talking to your employees or to your investors or to your board or to your regulator, the ability, you can have the best processes in the world, but if you can't explain why they're the best processes or how they relate to that audience, I mean, they, they matter, but they, they only half matter, right? So that culture piece and that communications piece in creating safe and productive spaces for people to explore these questions, many of which don't have obvious answers, you know, and, and is has been really important and been really rewarding. The other thing that's really rewarding is that there tends to be, as you look at the literature, a lot of false choices and false oppositional sets that get set out there. Like you can have transparency or security, you can have privacy or transparency. And I just don't think that way. And that's not been our experience with our clients is that if you can get to that next level and start to think about, you know, what the real objectives are and how you can navigate through that, it, it actually is a wonderful moment when people start thinking beyond those kinds of labels and, and sort of broad terms into what's really going to work in their business.
0: Yeah, a lot of our listeners are in the business of practice of law, whether they be knowledge management people in uh, law firms or managing partners or folks in general counsel's offices or designing or developing legal tech. What are the governance issues that folks in those areas ought to be thinking about as they're bringing some of these emerging technologies into their own business? Apart from calling and hiring you, what should they be thinking about?
1: As it relates to the practice of law, what they ought to be thinking about is there's a substantive piece to that, which is let's think about old problems in new ways, right? And there's it's a whole new category of potential outcomes, potential risks, potential liability, how we're going to draft contracts differently. I mean, so there's a substantive piece to it. Risk shifting has been much in the news. Some of the IP stuff has been much in the news, but it really is going to go more deep than that. I think from a practice perspective, it's going to be a long time before these tools meaningfully replace legal thinking and activity. But that doesn't mean they're not going to change it a lot. And they're going to change it a lot By automating some of the more routine tasks that we traditionally have had to do, but document review is a classic. We've been using advanced predictive analytics in document review for almost 20 years, right? The legal field was actually an early adopter, I think, of some of these technologies. But what we learned in that was that a lot of the training that happened of young associates and young lawyers that actually occurred during the process of doing document review
0: it fell away.
1: It would fell away. And you had to sort of find a new way to train up lawyers. So there are these all these sort of knock-on effects. The other one that, you know, that we used to talk a lot about was track changes. You know, instead of getting a memo back from a senior partner that basically said, you know, that fixed the first page and then said, try again. You know, the partners go in and they sort of do the changes and the changes just get accepted. And it's not it's not the same intellectual exercise to kind of review somebody's mark changes as it is to go back and have to really restructure an argument, and so it's not better or worse. It's just very different. And so, these technologies as we're bringing them in, and these tools as we're bringing them in, we need to be thinking also about how they're changing our culture, how they're changing our how the experience of people in the field, how we're going to get associates and partners to feel connected to the kind of unique parts of the work that are cognitive and that are a function of accumulated experience. Checking sites is not necessarily. I mean, it's it's an important. Things that we can already do very well, like site checking and sort of even doing kind of diligence using predictive tools on sort of structured data sets, even increasingly unstructured ones. Those are all going to be good decision support tools. But what we are going to need to do is be thinking a lot more expressly about which parts of the practice we want to reserve for the human experience and then how to train up lawyers in those categories of human experience,
0: if that makes sense. No, it does. It's a new way of thinking about the implications of technology. You know, we've been struggling with the same issues as we try to bring, whether it's RPA or other machine learning technologies in, and automating tasks. You have to ask the question, is there other value that having humans do the tasks are bringing, i.e. training, versus the obligation to be efficient and effective for your client, and the additional complication is the technologies often are as accurate or more accurate than the humans are. It's a, it's a it's a complicated weighting of variables.
1: Yeah, and and understanding that there's something. I mean, we should go back to say that AI is not actually thinking or contextual. It's 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 reflecting whatever objectives, parameters, limitations, purposeful or inadvertent that have been sort of inserted into the. Design. And so they're a little bit inflexible, right? And so I think one of the skill sets that lawyers in particular are going to have to get good at is identifying where the model is doing what the model was trained and designed to do, but it's not producing an output where we can get good at identifying the limits of the output that we're seeing and how to use it responsibly as a result, right? So if, I don't know if you've tried to use any of the automatic calendaring systems.
0: Yep, yep.
1: They're great, but all, all they really know is, I mean, they, they're more sophisticated than this, but basically what they're doing is they're looking if you have a free block of time. And they're not looking to see that the hour before you were actually just talking to a client that you know is always going to be challenging and that you might need <laughs> an hour. <laughs>
0: to no, clients like that?
1: What? Unless you block out the 20 minutes following that conversation that the tool doesn't know. Right. And you can over time teach that tool to do it, but that takes your time to teach the tool to know what you already know coming into the room. Right. So it's so it's a it's an extraordinarily helpful thing to be able to merge your calendars and let other people see when you're free and when you're not, instead of doing that by sixteen emails back and forth. But it's still not a perfect solution because there are gonna be these edges where we know the tool is not really adapting. And these tools will get better and better at adapting, but it's gonna be a while before the likes of lawyers who are skeptical by nature are going to be really ready to accept them as substitutes.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that we we have that challenge. As I've said, we do a lot of work ourselves with some emerging technologies in the space. And one of the challenges we have is exactly what you've just described, which is if it's not getting you 100% of the way there, the lawyers focus on that 10% that needs to be fixed as opposed to the 90% of its of the value that it's bringing. And it's a challenging change dynamic.
1: It really is. And and it's not necessarily a standard that we would apply to people around us or organizations or institutions. It wouldn't be reasonable to do it. And I think we need to, as a result, just develop a more sophisticated relationship with these tools and ability to kind of sort through where is the value, where do I need to bring my team in? And the other thing that is going to change is community standards and this whole category of what's reasonable is changing. And it's changing under our feet. And what I think is going to be one of the more challenging issues for lawyers to navigate, there's many, but one of them is that, particularly for litigators, any circumstance that you're evaluating 18 months later because a dispute has arisen runs a very good chance that the conditions under which the decisions were made or the acts were taken or not taken, literally the social conditions for that will have been changed by the time you're looking at it 18 months later. And whether it was reasonable for a doctor to override the recommendation of the algorithm that detected the presence of a cancerous cell or not will be different in time one to time 10. And so how we're going to sort out the retroactive application of the community standards that are clearly wrong and ancient, but only 18 months old is going to be a, a really interesting. It's going to be a really interesting problem, you know, both and, and it's, and it, and it has an implication to how we draft contracts and risk, you know, risk shifting provisions as well. And it's right now it's a pretty blunt instrument. You know, everybody who has the risk tries to shift it to the side or down. And I don't think it's going to be that simple as we start to litigate the enforcement and implications of those provisions as they get unspooled <laughs> when the inevitable disputes arise and
0: so forth. Given the speed of change in technology as you're, as you're describing, how does a regulatory framework have any hope of keeping up or even getting, or getting ahead of the curve?
1: I mean, that is the $64,000 million trillion question right now, right? Is you've got all, you've got regulators around the world thinking about this. Some of them are thinking comprehensively about it. Some of them are thinking more about aspects of this, like the security aspect or the privacy aspect or the data protection aspect. I actually think it's, that's all very important, but it's we're still missing a layer of understanding how these technologies are working in the first place. The White House actually, an OSTP, just came out with a blueprint for a bill of rights. They're the latest and a welcome addition to what is a pretty robust library of those sorts of efforts that are kind of prudential as opposed to mandatory. I think I appreciate the prudential work more than some do, but this may be my background in antitrust, which is you know it's not a highly prescriptive regulatory scheme. It, The action is sort of how the enforcement works. I think efforts to be highly prescriptive are inevitably going to fail for just all these reasons, but we can't even describe what a lot of the proposed regulations describe automatic or automated decision processes. And the problem with that is that that, that includes things that are plainly not AI. You know, it's just sort of your ordinary financial software and things that are running as they've always run on just sort of complex linear math. So they, they have this tendency to be overbroad and oversweeping. They tend to try to be one size fits all. What's going to end up really working is some combination of looser, more agile regulation, meaningful enforcement around activities that are plainly out of bounds or reckless. This goes back to that reasonable reckless spectrum. I think we will be able to describe the ends of those spectrums. And work our way in but efforts to to legislate this at a very particular level i think ultimately they're not going to work to get the outcomes we want they might work to create a very elaborate compliance apparatus like we have in some other areas and i worry about those a little bit just personally because i think they're going to divert a lot of energy to that apparatus effort as opposed to the outcomes effort so our job is to stay focused on outcomes and impact and we also do the compliance work. That's I'm not to, not to say that that's not important. It's very important. But I think the real challenge is much broader than that.
0: A regulatory framework's not particularly good at agile or loose regulation, though, is it?
1: No, it's not. But that's a lot of the debate that's going on right now. I mean, I think there are these efforts, like the Blueprint, like the Business Roundtables Roadmap, like this risk management framework, that are actually quite detailed in their way, right? I mean, they actually do tackle some of these very substantive questions and what would be the indicia of a job well done on the technology governance front. And I do think the other thing that's missing in a lot of the regulatory efforts right now, all due respect, is, first of all, let me say what they're doing well. One of the things they're doing well is saying existing rules apply, even if you're using algorithms. So whether it's in an employment context or the financial, you know, the fair lending context, If you've got rules, anti-discrimination standards and rules, those don't go away because you used an algorithm. You've got to get your algorithms functioning in a way that we can recognize as being within bounds. There are also going to be some brand new issues coming up. I think what they're not doing particularly well is they're not acknowledging that a lot of the performance uplift that we all want to see is iterative, right? And so if if there is a company out there that is doing a, a serious, incredible job of governing, revising, honestly, looking for places where the bias may come in and shifting it, there needs to be an opportunity for those companies to continue to get better before they get put in the penalty box. I think what we ought to be doing is focusing on the companies that are disregarding the need to do that work and sort of view that as somebody else's problem. I think that's that's where some of these regulations are going a bit astray.
0: Uh, fair enough. It's, it's a simple
1: answer, but it's but that that is an area where I think we're going to need to improve our approach to regulation.
0: What technologies are on the horizon that have you excited about their potential, not necessarily from a regulatory standpoint, but from just a practical changing the way people live their lives?
1: Well, I mean, all this virtual and augmented and immersive reality stuff is going to be really interesting and really impactful and really scary and really novel, right? I mean, it's, it literally defies sort of our understanding of a three-dimensional world. And there's so much that will be delightful and fun and interesting. And I think it's going to cause, I think it's actually going to be great for creativity. I think there, there, there's a way that it would be limiting, but I think it's going to be an amazingly creative time, but it's also going to be an incredibly difficult time to govern. And I think the things that worry me most aren't necessarily in the virtual reality world, but also in the virtual reality world is deep fakes. The better and better these technologies get at deceiving us, at confusing our understanding of what we know or want to know or believe or can rely on. We haven't really replaced that with a standard way of thinking about facts and truth and disclosure as a lawyer around when we're dealing with something that is synthetic versus when we're dealing with something that is analog or in the real world, as I would say.
0: I saw a a video of a panel you did where you were talking about metaverse. Can you govern the ungovernable? And I recommend it to our audience. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. But one of the observations you made that frankly made the top of my head pop off because I'd never thought about it was you're talking about deep fakes and you're talking about in the metaverse, it's not necessarily about stealing the data. You could create an avatar that duplicates what you look like and could go around acting like yourself. And the only person who knows it's different is you because, you know, you wouldn't say those things, I think, is the example you gave. I'm of an age where I I didn't grow up on video games. So the whole thing sort of blew my mind.
1: Well, it it is. And you can see that, um, you know, the opportunities for mischief are (laughs) profound. But we also from a lawyer, just bringing it back to lawyers, how we deal with that kind of misappropriation is not something we have obvious answers for. I mean, I think we probably all have an impulse or an instinct about it, but it's not actually in the law. It's going to be much more complicated than that. And if, if someone relies on that avatar of you doing something even that you started to intend, but has sort of taken on a life of its own or learned something that in a different way than you would have learned it. So now is doing things that depart from how you would have done them. What kinds of, you know, accountability is there? Is that accountability appropriately on you for not training your avatar right or on the model for making associations and correlations that were imperfect or in retrospect, you wish. You didn't or weren't, you know, so I mean, it's that's going to be end up being a very complicated question. And the other thing I would say is like people AI today, and we can get into quantum. I'm also very excited about, but AI today, there are inherent overfitting and underfitting issues. There are inherent error rates and uncertainty rates. Right. And one of the things that governance can do today, whether it's regulated or not in an effective way is to be very clear-eyed about what the boundary conditions and limits of the tools are and where, you know, if something is 95% accurate under these conditions, that's great if you're doing population studies, if it's not great if you're trying to you know diagnose a person or an x-ray. And so what we will require of these tools in terms of their accuracy and how they get sort of incorporated into workflows will be very different from one context to another. And so we need to start thinking beyond the hype and the marketing about how are we all going to start to understand probabilities in a much more um, rigorous way than we do, and you know, and and not fall prey to the the sort of the heuristic biases that we all have about understanding statistics and also probabilities. Interestingly, it's an area where if you talk to an economist, a data scientist, and a social scientist, or or you know, somebody in the social sciences they teach probabilities and statistics very differently. Like they they just, the language is different. The concepts are different. What matters is sort of different. And so this is one of those areas where everybody could be saying the same thing or thinking they're trying to describe the same phenomenon, but talking past each other. And one piece of this work is kind of unpacking those moments and making sure everybody's now really understanding, you know, where we can accept those tolerances, where we can't, why we can't.
0: Well, it sounds like you've moved into a really fascinating practice, and I encourage people to find you. Well, as I said, we'll link you to your show notes. You've got a series in Luminate Plus, which just launched, I think, last week, which looks fabulous. I confess I haven't seen any of the modules yet, but it looks fabulous. And I know we've run a little bit over our time. I appreciate you indulging me, and I appreciate the conversation. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you. I think the, the most important thing here is just to be engaging with the content. So I really appreciate you having me on and keeping this conversation going.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for your time. Take care. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.